Go ahead and grab a seat. And as you're grabbing a seat, if you see one of these clipboards uh, on the seat next to you, uh, grab it. Maybe, maybe there's one on a seat in the row in front of you. You can grab it. On here, if you want to in any way be connected with um, Sedaris Church, which is uh, the church hosting this event, uh, you can fill this out, put your name and email, um, and at any time, if you don't want to get communication from us, you can let us know, and we'll take you off that list. Uh, but we do want to help you get connected if you'd be interested in, in uh, being a part of other events like this. We hope this isn't the last uh, Baron Butterfly forum that we do. Um, the other thing you'll see is a blank note card. If at any point during the first part of the open forum you have a question that, that you feel like uh, you'd like to get answered at the end of the night tonight, we'll have a time of Q&A. We hope that it's a substantial time so that we can really uh, address as many questions as possible. So fill one of these out. If you like to ask questions, you can even rip it in half and write two questions. And then at, at some point we'll sort of collect all those and pick the easiest questions and answer them. How about that? Okay. And then, the, then also you'll see there's a little note sheet if you, if you like to take notes, okay? So again, welcome to the bear and the butterfly. Nope, we're both bears, both butterflies. Uh, and our topic tonight is suffering. So uh, let me just get right into it. This is Dr. Tyler Tate, and uh, we're very lucky to have him here with us. Uh, I feel privileged to share the stage with you. Um, uh, so Tyler, why don't you start by just uh, introducing yourself a little bit and telling us just real briefly why you think uh, that you have something to say about suffering. Sounds good. Well, thanks for having me, everyone. Um, as Dave knows, I hate flattery, so it makes me feel very uncomfortable. But... <laughs> um, <laughs> So I am a pediatrician, and I'm just finishing up a two-year fellowship in um, ethics, getting my master's in bioethics from the UW. Um, and sort of as a disclaimer, I think, and anytime you read someone, particularly in the Christian tradition, write about, suff write about suffering, they usually start, or I would say they should start, by saying, um, I don't feel like I have any particular vantage point on suffering. And I know that a lot of you here, I know firsthand that a lot of you here, including myself, have gone through a lot of really hard things in the past just few days. Um, so, you know, I think it's, I feel like it's an honor to be able to talk about this really difficult topic. And my prayer and hope is that, as Dave said to begin with, we can at least start a conversation that ultimately can lead to healing. Um, so I have always, interestingly, I've always been interested in suffering. I don't, I, it's kind of a bizarre thing, um, to be fascinated by, but I think it started, um, when I was very young and about 10 and we went to Mexico with my church. I'll, I'll start as a disclaimer too, I'm a Christian and everything I say is framed by that, um, belief system. Um, and going to Mexico and seeing kids for the first time who were really sick and dying from diseases that we didn't have here in the United States, and I, it was sort of um, a wake-up call. Then when I was um, 20 years old, my best friend 
committed suicide, um, Vinny. He had grown up with us. He lived with us for nine years. Um, and I felt deeply responsible for that because we had grown apart um, at the end of high school, or really my first years of college while I was pursuing pre-med. He dropped out of college and then started getting into drugs and ultimately died from a heroin overdose that we're not totally sure if it was purposeful or not. But he had written me a suicide note um, a few weeks before me and each of his family members. I was the only person, and he had told me um, that, you know, he was so grateful for our relationship. And I remember when that happened, it was the first time where I um, felt like there is something deeply wrong with the world, and, um, and perhaps with my beliefs, that I could believe in a good God, and this kind of thing would happen. Um, then my dad's best friend and one of my best friends, um, father growing up, got diagnosed with ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, when um, I was pretty quickly after Vinny. There was actually Vinny's cousin. Um, it was his uncle. And um, he, we watched him die, basically. You know, um, For those of you who aren't familiar with this, this disease, it's really horrible. You lose all neurologic function, and you sort of waste away while having a perfectly coherent mind. Um, my dad would go over there once a week and bathe him. Um, and I remember in my church growing up, someone had a prophecy, what they thought was a prophecy, and it was that John would run again. He had been a professional soccer player. And I remember thinking to myself, he's going to be healed. This is the promise of God. And then six months later, he died. Um, and that was probably... Those two things happened pretty quickly, and I remember that's, I picked up C.S. Lewis's Problem of Pain, and I read it for the first time, kind of trying to grapple with these answers, these questions. Then I went to medical school, um, and we'll never forget a really dramatic time in my fourth year of medical school, and I was in my ICU rotation, and it was one of my last days of call, and, you know, you hear this, you know, patient coming up, everyone get ready, and the doors busted open and in wheeled this 10-year-old uh, African-American boy whose name was Tyler, actually, and they were coding him from the emergency department. He had leukemia. Um, he had come in just bleeding out, as you can do when you have this kind of cancer, and um, I did chest, in pediatrics, we code people really, really long, um, and I, we coded him, I coded him for about an hour while I'll never forget his father standing in the corner screaming, why is this happening? Do something for my son, for Tyler. And he kept saying it, which was particularly dramatic. Um, you know, we finished the code, we called it, he died, and I remember having to change my scrubs and wringing them out because they were so covered in sweat. So then I came to, out here to residency and had a series. I mean, when you're in pediatrics, you see a lot of death, and you just, I always have had this deep sense of injustice that this indicates something is wrong with the world, you know? And um, there are various answers and various frames that you can go about trying to answer that question. So when I started my fellowship in ethics and um, got involved with actually Dr. Perlman, my mentor is here, um, and we started trying to explore ways to talk about suffering with patients. And it sort of opened this rabbit hole where I started trying to understand suffering from a philosophical perspective better. Um, and it's sort of led me here. Um, so I've written about this and tried to uh, think about what we're talking about when we talk about suffering so that in the clinical sphere we can discuss it better. Um, but the real question that I 
am most interested in is as Christians, um, what do we do about it? Um, I'm going to ask myself that same question just so you can get a little framework from, uh, from me. Uh, as you know, I am a pastor, so I too am a Christian and uh, wrestle with uh, these questions and, and people invite me in for their suffering and their lives and people have lots of questions about suffering. I too don't feel like I'm an expert. And I think it's important to say that, that one of the things that I hope um, definitely you walk away with is that there's no suffering that is is too small to be classified as suffering. Uh, All of our suffering is different and unique, and it is suffering. Um, In my own life, I actually grew up for the first 23 years of my life with probably as little suffering as you could potentially have. I mean, Really, everything went according to what I thought was God's plan. And then 10 years ago, my sister, who was 26 years old, uh, three years older than me, uh, was healthy as could be, uh, living a great life, and she was hit by a semi-truck while riding her bicycle and killed instantly. And so, uh, although I'd been a Christian my whole life, I started asking myself this question. Uh, similar to Tyler, uh, do I believe this? Even now in the midst of this tragedy and this suffering. And um, that has been the greatest suffering in my life. Uh, I've still, in other ways, been relatively free from suffering. Um, but that is a big one for me. And I'll just read, I, I just wanted to read this just as a, a way to set this up. This is something that that C.S. Lewis wrote when he wrote his uh, famous work on suffering called The Problem of Pain. Uh, he, He wrote this, he said, I must add too, that the only purpose of the book, that's the problem of pain, is to solve the intellectual problem raised by suffering. For the far higher task of teaching fortitude and patience, I was never full enough to suppose myself qualified, nor have anything to offer my readers except my conviction that when pain is to be born, a little courage helps more than much knowledge, a little human sympathy more than much courage, and the least tincture of love of God more than all. And I think it's important, we'll be talking about suffering in many ways from an intellectual perspective, um, but to be an expert intellectually, uh, and Tyler more than I on this topic, does not make us the best at suffering well. Um, There's probably many of you who are suffering well and are the true experts in the room. So I I just hope that uh, as you listen to us, um, you don't feel yourself to be unqualified to suffer because in many ways it is courage, not knowledge, that that helps us through suffering. And I hope no matter if you're a Christian or not a Christian uh, or if you're not sure uh, that this is beneficial to you because you will experience and probably are experiencing some suffering. We hope that this is beneficial, that you walk out of here thinking this is a good use of a, of a Sunday evening. So um, with that said, with those introductions, um, let's get into this topic. And we'll start with you, Tyler. Uh, and I know you've written on this. You've submitted articles to, to journals and whatnot. And you can talk about that a little bit if you want. Uh, but you've really been trying to identify 
this question and answer this question. What is suffering? This is a very easy question. Uh, <laughs> um, so when Dave and I were talking about this talk, we thought it may be helpful just for me to try and briefly summarize um, some how I've come to understand what suffering is. Because, for instance, for those of us in medicine, I know there's a lot of people in medicine here, the word is thrown around very loosely. Um, and sometimes I think that um, it, it is thrown around in a way that is insensitive even to someone who is actually suffering, who has lost a loved one or who has chronic illness or who knows that their life is going to be most likely over in six months because of a cancer diagnosis. Um, so that, that being said, the way that I, and I even want to say we because Bobby's here, but um, have come to understand suffering is to think about first, and I think this is important, I'll even say before I go into this, suffering is, I, I think, inseparable from the life of a human being. So what do I mean by that? I mean, can we even understand what it is to live the lives that we have been given and to walk and to have relationships without suffering? I don't think we actually can. Um, there is also a Christian response or a Christian sort of answer that is along the same lines of this, but um, by being constrained by bodies, by knowing that we're all going to die, um, and by knowing that the people we love will inevitably and oftentimes leave this earth before we do, um, I think we're bounded by suffering. So the way that we understand suffering is that human beings, the way that we identify ourselves, what we, how we think about ourselves, there's kind of three main ways that we think about ourselves. Um, we think about ourselves in relationship to other people. So oftentimes the most important part of our lives is our relationships. So whether that's a husband, or a wife, or a sister, or a parent. Um, I think in my own life, I am uh, pretty much who I am because of what my dad and mom told me when I was growing up, how I relate to my 21-year-old brother who's in college in Arkansas, um, the conversations we have, the inside jokes we share. And when those things are taken from me, if they ever were, that's real suffering, because we are partly constituted in those relationships that we have. Who I am is tied up with the people I love. Um, the second thing that I think, way to think about who we are and how that relates to suffering is the roles that we take on as people. So um, if I am a doctor, then I am sort of measured by how good of a doctor I am. For medicine, it's something that consumes our lives, and if we can figure out the right diagnosis, if we can be kind and compassionate to someone, I am measured, I am identified, Tyler is a good doctor by how well he performs those roles. Um, similar to if you're a mother, you know, when you, when you nurse your child or you care for someone or you, you know, take your child to daycare or whatever it may be, how much you sort of fill out those roles is oftentimes how we conceive of ourselves as being having a full life. And then the last thing we think about is our lives as stories. And, and maybe, you know, maybe that seems, of course, we conceive of ourselves as having stories, but it goes pretty deep. We think about ourselves, we look back in our past, and we identify time points that were particularly important and formative. Perhaps in a good way, 
when someone, you know, when I got that letter that I got in medical school for the first time, and suddenly every door just bust open. It didn't matter if every other place uh, rejected me. I knew that my future had just completely changed. Other times we look back at moments of deep shame or regret or remorse or loss. Um, but the point is that we conceive of ourselves as having stories. We look into the future and we have hopes that I'll still be around to, you know, see my parents get older, that I'll be able to take care of them, that I'll be able to continue to travel, that my legs will continue to work. And um, what I believe suffering is, if you really want to ask what is it, it's when one of those three areas of our lives sustain an injury um, that sort of disables us and doesn't let us fully live the lives that we conceive of ourselves as sort of needing to live to flourish completely. So, you know, if something is removed from your life in the future, or your ability to conceive of yourself in the future, you're a basketball player, all your hopes and dreams are tied up in, you know, being able to get through college and play in the NBA, and you get in a car crash, and you have a bilateral below-the-knee amputation, and suddenly, all those dreams, all those visions, everything you thought of yourself as, the things that gave your life meaning and importance and a future are gone, well, that's suffering, I think. Um, and so if your ability to be a mother, those roles are removed from you for some reason, your child dies, or your relationships are injured or gone, then those are forms of suffering. And then the other thing we believe also that comes along with that is just a general bad feeling. So when you're suffering, everything is sort of darkened. And, and there's a great quote that I'll, I'll quote from C.S. Lewis as well from his other book, The Grief Observed, which is sort of a lament. Uh, lament on after his wife dies, and he says, living after his wife dies was like this. It says, there's nothing really terrible occurs, but the atmosphere, the taste of the whole thing is deadly. So with this, I see the rowan berries reddening, and I don't know for a moment why they, of all things, should be depressing. I hear a clock strike, and some quality it always had before has gone out of the sound. What's wrong with the world to make it so flat shabby, and worn-out looking. So, uh, I really like this. I just want to interject here and, and ask you this question. Can you tell them what you told me about the difference between suffering and pain? Obviously, pain is a form of suffering, but talk a little bit about that difference. I think that's helpful. Yeah. So, yeah, when, if we're trying to articulate what suffering is, so that, I mean, it's important to know what we're talking about so that we can actually help people, right? And as Dave sort of mentioned, there are two main questions in suffering, particular, particularly uh, from a theological perspective, but any perspective. There's a question of why. How could this be? How could, why is this? Why is this deep injustice that pervades all of our lives? That's question number one. But question number two is the what. What do we do about it? How can we live? How can we comport ourselves and not just unravel in a world so profoundly full of pain and, sor and sorrow and suffering? So the distinction, uh, as we, as I think, that some people think that all pain is a form of suffering. I don't think that's true. Um, you know, I, and I think it's important because we often look at the news. I mean, today, there are so many things troubling, deeply troubling about the world, right? I mean, everything going in and on in our country, it's just like every time you turn on New, New York Times, it's there was a stabbing in London today, you know, the concert last week, wherever, you know, the Ariana Grande concert where all these people died, 40 
Christians who were in a bus in, um, not Somalia, but somewhere like three weeks ago, um, you know, were brought down by these Muslim um, terrorists and asked if they would convert to Islam, and they didn't, and they were shot systematically. I mean, so these are really horrible things. But to be able to point to someone else and say, you're definitely suffering, I don't think you can do that. I think that, and and this is important within Christian theology too, because it's really easy to look and say, how could, you know, how could, the, take the Nazis, you know, and the horrible atrocities that happened to the Jews. Um, how could this happen and there still be a good God out there? Well, one important question you have to ask yourself is you're not the person. You are not the sufferer. So you don't know what the experience of that person is and what their form of suffering is or if they are even suffering. Because, that's important, pain is not suffering, right? If you're training for a marathon... Or, you know, we have a lot of bikers here. If you're training for a huge race, you undergo extreme physical distress and pain, and you're just pleading it would be over, and yet you don't want it to be over because you want to train. You want to, you know, get your body in a certain way. Also, I mean, the patients we take care of, they undergo extreme pain, and yet they come in, and they're just so full of joy, and you feel like they're giving you something, and you say, you wonder, how in the world could they not be suffering? But now pain can be suffering, right? Because that's, but the reason this distinction is important and the way it works, I think, is that suffering is largely about meanings, right? So everything that happens in our life, the way we interpret things, we attach meanings to those things. Um, You know, someone says something to us and we're wondering, was that a backhanded compliment or a real compliment? You know, it's like, okay, let me think about that. It depends on how, what it means to us. And so the way that pains are interpreted oftentimes can cause suffering. For instance, right now I have really bad plantar fasciitis in my foot, and the pain itself is not really bothering me all that much, but the fact that I can't really run, or I worry that if I keep doing it, I may no longer be able to run long-term, which is a critical part of who I am and happiness, it's my interpretation of this pain that is suff- could be suffering, which I think though is important, because when we have people we love who are undergoing really horrible things or maybe dying, we, or someone we don't know that well, we may automatically think they're suffering, but they may not be, because I believe suffering is an individual sort of subjective experience. That's good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so let me ask you another follow-up question to this. Uh, that, that might help us sort of start to grasp what is suffering, uh, but tell, tell us a little bit here, why do you think it's so important to, to put a fine point on suffering? Like, why do we want to understand what is suffering, who is suffering, and be able to identify that? Why is yeah. that so important? So, um, once again, everything I say, I want to say, take it with a grain of salt. Who am I to be talking about this? I feel very, you know, it's like, this is such a huge thing. But here's, I think that this ans- the answer to that question actually can take two forms, and it actually does depend on, to me, it depends on your, relig- your religious conception of the world. So I think this answer does take a different form if you're a Christian, or if you have some other, um, you know, deep religious conviction that essentially gives meaning and form to the way that you comport yourself, the way you understand life and death. So, um, first, for anyone, if you, you, let's say you believe there's no God, and um, and there's no fundamental meaning that grips, you know, um, the human life. 
Suffering's still obviously really important. One, because it's just as horrible. Um, but um, try not to get too philosophical, but human beings, actually, as I was sort of mentioning at the beginning, I don't think can exist outside of the suffering experience. For instance, if we evolved, we evolved in the milieu of suffering. We came to understand other human beings through experiencing their suffering. And, and this is important for everyone, this is how, I believe, through suffering, we come to realize that we are, down to our bones, dependent creatures who are um, uh, fundamentally require help from other people, right? So, so by experiencing suffering ourselves and seeing other people who are suffering, we come to realize that we're not the autonomous, independent agents that we sort of, you know, feel sometimes like we're promised to be, in, especially in Western culture. That we can do whatever we want at any time we want. We're never going to die, hopefully, if science can just, you know, catch up fast enough. You know, there's a, um, some rapper I was reading is extremely excited because he thinks that by the time he dies, we will be able to download his consciousness, put it on a computer. Oh, no, 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 no. He's gonna, he was going to freeze his body so that he believes in within 100 years we will be able to reanimate him, download his consciousness, put it onto a computer, and turn him into a robot. Because he thinks he's never going to want to die. Wish I could remember who that was. It's a really good story. Um, <laughs> but the point of this is that suffering reminds us that when we're sick, we need someone to help us. When we're dying, we need someone to comfort us, to hold our hand while we're in a hospital bed. And this is going to happen to all of us, right? We, we forget that sometimes when we're in our 20s or 30s and we're doing whatever we want. We're doing great in our jobs. We're, you know, having kids. We're just succeeding. It's that out in front of us. We're all going to experience a time where we will not be able to survive without a loved one, without a family member, without a friend to pick us up from the hospital when we have appendicitis, <laughs> as someone in this very room did for me. Um, <laughs> and um, that we are formed with fundamental relationships of dependency. We cannot do whatever we want. We are bounded by suffering. And it is formative to the very, what the very meaning of being a human being is secondary to an understanding of the suffering that we all will have in our lives. And one thing I'll also say, I think this is when I wanted to, did I, is this when I wanted to mention this? Yeah, let me prompt you on that. No, that's, this is later. Keep yeah. going. So, <laughs> so you mentioned, okay, that, that explanation, that's for anybody, no matter what you believe or think the world, how it's, how it's formulated. Tell us, because you are a Christian, how your Christian faith now informs a different uh, nuance to your understanding of why um, talking about, studying, writing about suffering is so important. Yeah. Um, so, as Christians, we believe, and we need to believe, that the Christian life is an ethical life. What do I mean by that? Ethics is not something that's up in the sky. Ethics is every day, what am I going to do with my life? What am I going to think? How am I going to act? 
Who am I going to call? Am I going to go to my job? Am I going to pick up the phone when that person I kind of know but don't know too well is texting me and wanting to talk? When that you know, person on the bus looks really sad, do I ask them what's wrong with their life or do I not? Okay? So, as a Christian, God call, as Christians, God calls us to act, right? In James, it says, true and undefiled religion is this, that we care for the widows and orphans in, our, in their distress, and we keep ourselves unstained from the world. In Matthew and in the Gospels, Jesus distinguishes, at the end of time, true believers from others as the people who cared for him, but who was he? In disguise, he was, once again, the widows and the orphans and the people who have needs, right? So, and I think this can actually go for everyone, but specifically within Christianity, as, as a Christian, what we learn is that other people have claims on us. So we are not free agents. We cannot do whatever we want to do because we are called by God to reach out and tend to those who are suffering. We cannot get off scot-free and just do whatever we want because our lives are not our own, right? We are fundamentally, inextricably bound by God to serve those who are hurting. And I think that understanding that can completely revolutionize how you live your life and how you understand the gospel message, right? Um, as one that um, the, the boundaries of life, the, the train tracks that God lays down for us to live by which we can comport ourselves are ones that lead us to helping other people. And, it, and suffering sort of helps illuminate that deep obligation and fundamental claim that people have. We can't just do whatever we want. You know, I'll just finish this thought here for you and then go into um, what I hope is helpful from a pastoral side of things. But you said part of the reason you want to be a medical doctor and not just a philosopher is because you believe that people have a claim on your life, that you, you are called by the God that you worship to help the suffering. Um, and of course, thinking and talking about suffering is helping, but that you felt compelled that part of your life will remain and will always be, um, so to speak, getting your hands dirty and, and doing uh, the work of a comforter. So um, with that said, thank you, Tyler, for that introduction to what is suffering. Um, I want to, as a pastor, uh, talk about uh, this little thing. You may have heard this word, uh, but it's called lament. And it's a category that I, I feel like was a part of, of our world um, up until probably maybe 50 years ago or so, and we just stopped lamenting. Um, so I want to try to recover for us uh, what I call the theology of lament. And lament is something that we see again and again in the Bible. You can't get away from it. It's a, it's a biblical concept. It's a Christian concept. Um, and yet, uh, if you're not a Christian or you haven't been a Christian long, you might think, I don't know many Christians who do this well. And it's just something to admit as Christians that we've become terrible 
at learning to lament the suffering in the world. Because suffering is, in fact, all around us, and yet oftentimes we are unaware of it, and even worse about speaking to it, recognizing it uh, publicly. Um, we have become uh, like the world, and in some cases even worse than the world in avoiding the topic. So um, when we encounter suffering, it has this effect on us. We, we become disoriented, right? Because we recognize that something in the world is not right. It's not as it was meant to be. Does that make sense? Uh, it disorients us. That's part of what Tyler's saying. It's why we suffer, because we've become disoriented. And we kind of recognize that things aren't right. And so to, uh, to enter into, I think, a proper, a healthy, a helpful lament, we have to first kind of understand, uh, like you said, both sides of this problem of suffering, this problem of evil, uh, this problem of pain, because there's an intellectual side and an existential side. Um, I, as a pastor, uh, am, am most concerned. I'm not un, uninterested in the intellectual side. I think it's very important. But I'm most concerned in the existential side, or the you could call it the pastoral problem of pain. Uh, but first, I want to just mention the intellectual side, because I think, as a Christian, I just want to speak to, um, from a Christian perspective, how we would understand why suffering exists. Because if we don't have an intellectual framework for understanding why suffering exists, then uh, we're going to run into some problems when we try to deal with the existential problem and actually help people through their suffering. So, the intellectual understanding from a Christian perspective goes something like this. This is the, the, the narrative arc of the Bible, of the Christian message, and it goes something like this, that God created everything, and when he created it, it was good. None of it was broken. And uh, then something happened. Uh, those whom God had created decided to do it their own way, and we call that the fall. And because human beings, who are the pinnacle of God's creation, chose uh, to do it their own way, it actually ended up breaking everything. And so everything became broken to a degree. And so we have a good creation, but then we have a fall. But then God, because he's a good God and he loves he wants to redeem that which is broken. And so he has, uh, since the fall, been on a historical reconciliation uh, project. He's putting all things back together. And as a Christian, we believe uh, the pinnacle of that movement was sending Jesus into the world to, to live a perfect life and to die for the sins of all humanity and then to rise from the grave to prove that it was finished. But uh, Jesus goes uh, away from the world, and now he waits to put all things back, but he's coming again. And so you have this creation, this fall, this redemption, but this other category, uh, which is sort of uh, sometimes called the already but not yet. We already see that Jesus has done the work, but we still live in a time of suffering as we wait for him to come and, and finish his work. So that's a Christian understanding of, of the world and, and how things work. And I think it actually answers uh, the question, maybe, maybe better than any other worldview, why suffering exists, why we recognize the disorientation uh, when something happens in our life that, that, that uh, robs us of our identity, robs us of our purpose, our meaning, um, why we recognize that. 
So I want to read to you uh, real quickly a passage that sort of sums this up well in uh, a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome. And, and it's, it's uh, a, a little bit of a passage, so stick with me. Listen closely. He, he explains this here. This is Romans 8, uh, 18 and on. It says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes in what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait with patience. Likewise, the Spirit of God helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as, uh, as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And so what you see in this passage is this, you see the holistic understanding of the groaning of all things, the groaning of creation itself, for it has been affected by this thing called suffering. Human beings are affected, and we groan. And here's what's really, really interesting, is that it says God himself groans. The Holy Spirit of God groans along with us. And so I get this from a professor of mine from seminary. His name's uh, Douglas Groteis. And uh, he talks about this. This is a universal groaning. And so you could even call uh, what is lamenting, you could call it a theology of groaning. And what you see in this passage is that we within ourselves groan because of the suffering that we experience. That is sort of the, 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 the groaning within. Then you see the world and others around us groaning. That's sort of the groaning without. And then you see God himself groaning. Because he is a God with emotion. He is not um, just some idea, some abstraction. He is a personal being who himself groans at the fallenness of the world, at the suffering of the world. And so that is the groaning from above. And so I think it's this very um, important, like Tyler said, that it's just a part of being. That not only human beings, but even the creation, even God himself, suffers and groans that this is not the way it's meant to be. And so um, what do we do in that moment? I think the proper response is what I'm calling, not what I'm calling, but what is classically called lament. Now, what is lament? We see in, in the Bible, there's a, whole, there's a whole book of the Bible called Lamentations. One-third to half of the Psalms, which are this huge chunk of the Scriptures, right in the middle of the Bible, half or a third are songs of lament. And so, we see that Jesus himself laments, that he cries out. 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so if the Bible talks about lament, if Jesus talks about lament, if God himself is lamenting, we, I think, as beings living in a suffering world, need to learn to lament. And um, lament is this totally different category than what you might be thinking in your head right now. And this is part of the reason that we've stopped lamenting is because we've miscategorized it. Um, lament is not despair. It is not utter despair. It is not um, grumbling to God. It is not grumbling to God. It is not self-pity. That is not lament. Lament is seeing the world as it currently is and the already but not yet, seeing that God's good creation has been marred, seeing that fellow human beings are hurting in pain, and crying out to the face of God, not behind his back, not um, in the dark, but out loud in front of God saying, this is not right, I do not like this, fix this, make it go away. That is lament. And that's actually what God wants us to do. I think if he didn't want us to do it, he wouldn't have put so many examples for us to see and to follow in his word. He would have figured out a way to keep it out of there. But I think he wants us to do it. Um, you, could, you could say it like this. Lamenting is living with your eyes wide open. Because if our eyes are wide open and we see the world as it is, which is full of suffering, to not say anything about it is worse than not even seeing it. So to live with eyes wide open means that we must learn to lament. And so we learn to groan. And we see this in Ecclesiastes. We see there's a time for weeping and that there's a time for dancing, a time for mourning and a time for laughter. This is thoroughly a Christian practice to learn to lament. And yet, unfortunately, we've, we've, we've fallen away from the practice, and we don't really know how to do it. Uh, Jesus said this in uh, some of his most famous uh, sermons, sermon on, uh, known as the Beatitudes. He says, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. Not, not blessed are those who are wealthy. Blessed are those who have comfort. Blessed are those who mourn. And I think... Um, because he says it, because we see Jesus lamenting, if um, Jesus lived the perfect life and he tells us to lament and he, t and he shows us how to lament, um, if he lived the perfect life, then it must be a part of living well, learning to lament. Okay. Um, I hope this is starting to, to, to sink in a little bit what this, this looks like. Um, Nicholas Waltersdorf, who is a, a Christian philosopher, and he lost his son in a, a tragic hiking accident. He wrote a book called, uh, what is the book called? The Lament for a Son. Um, he calls uh, lamenters, he says this. He says mourners, uh, those who lament well are mourners, who have caught a glimpse of God's new day and are not okay with it, not yet coming. And so for Christians, because we have this picture 
or this promise of a new day that's coming, and we know it's not there yet, the proper response is to cry out to God and to cry out, how long, O Lord? This is what you see. You see this over and over again in the Psalms. God crying out, how long, O Lord, until the suffering is gone? So that that's sort of the basics of what is lament, the theology of lament. And I'll, I'll come back in a second and talk about how do we actually do this well and what are some of the pitfalls of not lamenting well. But the basic idea is that it is actually the most godly thing to do to see suffering and to take it in to yourself, to recognize it, to cry out that it might go away, to do whatever you can stop it, but there's something actually just in the expression, the public expression or the private expression of lament that is actually a part, I think, of the beginning of making your way through whatever suffering you're going through or helping others to go through it. Okay, so what is suffering? What is lament? Uh, Now, Tyler, I want you to um, tell us uh, very, very, not very quickly, but you know, relatively quickly, where is this, um, how do you think, so w- with your understanding, your, your developing understanding of suffering and, and this codependency that we have as human beings, um, how do you think this plays itself out in the medical world? Like we said earlier, I think we've got lots of medical professionals in the room tonight, and I just, I just want you to touch on this. This is, this is your field. Um, tell us about how this idea of suffering and lament plays itself out or might, in, in your hopes, play itself out in the medical world in the decades to come. Um, well, this is related. In, in that book you mentioned, in Walter Stork's book, he says suffering ought to teach us to ask others, come sit beside me on this morning bench, which I think is such a powerful um, statement. Um, suffering uh, humbles us <laughs> and, and, and it, it, it shows us that we're dependent and it requires that we um, ask for compassion and for help from others. And, I, and that's, I mean, at its foundation, I think that's what medicine is, right? Um, that's one of the great things about being in medicine is if done right, I think every day you can sort of show up to work and um, and help those who are suffering. I, I was telling Dave this. I think there are there are lots and lots of fields, uh, professions where you're faced with suffering, but there are two that immediately spring to my mind where you see certain parts of it that really not many other people see. One is in the military, where you are actually watching people die. Your best friends are getting shot and killed. Um, you're burying your friends. And the other is in medicine, where you watch a 10-year-old with leukemia die on the table in front of you. Um, so before I talk briefly about sort of the, the way that medicine can approach that, I did want to say one thing, um, which is that suffering does something to us, for those of us when we experience, experience it. Um, there's this essay I'm, 
I've submitted like five times, and I'm going to get it accepted one day. Um, and I changed the title, and now it's going to be more catchy, and it's going to get accepted. Um, and I call it Medicine and the Liminal Space. Um, and I did really not know what the word liminal meant until recently. So I'll tell you. It, the liminality is this idea that as a culture, sort of a prehistoric or you know, rudimentary culture, believes that the world is mythologized. Every tree you know, has a spirit. Every death is something with meaning. The sun comes up and it, you know, it's actually God. It's raw. You can think about it in many different ways. Once that culture is exposed to, you know, the technologizing powers of modernity, of, you know, the Enlightenment, no, this is not true, you know, there's no God, and it's sort of coming to grips with these ideas, you have people who feel this tension between, um, you know, uh, old beliefs and sort of new beliefs. Now, I believe that, you know, an old belief, which is to believe, say that, you know, the world is imbued with the glory of God is actually a true mode of being, a true way of believing. But liminality is this idea, there's this deep tension where two worldviews whack up against each other and it's really distressing, okay? I think for death and suffering pulls us, in fact, drags us into a liminal space, right? And it forces people who have rejected God and or just don't believe, like, you know, Many of my friends just don't believe. When they see suffering, for instance, the death of a loved one, of a young person, of a 20-year-old, it forces them to say, God, that feels unjust. Why do I feel like that? What explains this deep feeling of injustice that has occurred in the world? And it sort of drags you into this space where you say, maybe there's actually meaning in the world after all. But what does it do to believers? You see the death of a loved one. And you say, how could a good God allow that to happen? Maybe my beliefs were misplaced after all. And you're dragged into the liminal space. You're dragged into this tension and this anxiety that your beliefs, that there's something wrong with them. Now, um, and, and this, 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 this space, this feeling, um, you know, demands an answer. And I, and I would argue and believe that Christianity, that the belief that, this anxiety was answered when God took on flesh, came into the world, and said, here's the answer that you've been searching for all along. It, it's not, as the philosopher that you like says, it's not optimism, it's not blithe optimism, it's not pessimism that everything is meaningless, but it's hope. It's hope in the resurrection of God. And it's hope that there actually is direction in all of this. Now, in medicine, this is a place where we're faced with suffering all the time, right? We see these deaths, we see these horrible things happen. And for those of us who practice medicine, I would argue, and I think that it's this beautiful opportunity that we oftentimes miss out on to be an agent and a force of healing. And it's not just in medicine, it's actually any time that there are suffering people. And this is also some of the stuff that um, we've worked on. But one way that we can approach suffering, and I think, is a, a, and be a, a force of healing is through, is through language, right? And when you think back the three, mo the three domains of what makes me who I am that can be hurt or injured when you're suffering, it's your relationships, it's your roles, 
brother, a sister, a friend, and it's your narrative. It's how you think of yourself in the future. Well, in medicine in particular, but in all of life, you are posed to be an agent of healing in each of those three domains. So, for instance, the, the patient, you know, the nurse or doctor who's caring for the patient, you know, the 20-year-old the with muscular dystrophy who is um, approaching getting intubated, having to breathe a tube because his lungs are failing him, and there's no family to be seen. And you're just like, what? Where are this person's family? Or what's going on? Where are his friends? Well, that person, part of their suffering is certainly abandonment, is certainly feeling disenfranchised from the rest of humanity as they're isolated in a hospital room filled with beeping monitors, right? So one way that we can actually be agents of healing and I think actually display the love of God through our actions is to sort of help um, reestablish some of those lost relationships. So help them know that, you know, down to their bones, there's someone who does care about them, and they're only, you know, a button press away, right? Um, and it is something that, once again, displays this deep contingency, because you remember, it's only by either, you know, blind luck or the grace of God that you are not the person in that hospital bed dying from respiratory failure. And if not now, we will all be in a position where we are dying, right? Um, and and, you know, this, this gets to this whole question of, um, I'll just want to say one thing about, because I think it's really important. I, in reading this book that I've been reading by this theologian, Stanley Hauerwas, who's at Duke, who's one of the reasons I want to go to Duke, and am going to Duke, um, in, he argues that, is this, and Dave already sort of mentioned this, isn't it peculiar that when you read the Bible, no one, the Israelites, the Christians of the New Testament, even the Greeks, the secular folks, no one is saying there's so much suffering, there must not be a God. That thought doesn't even occur to them. You don't read it anywhere in the Bible. Christians aren't saying, you know, God's all-powerful, God's all-love. Hmm, look at the world around us, there's so much suffering. Conclusion, logically, God doesn't exist. That's not even a way of thinking about the human life. Instead, they look out the world they see the suffering that their friends or themselves are experiencing, and they say two things. One, God, take this away. In my belief in you, I know that there is a plan and there is a purpose to life. Relieve us of this suffering, but if you don't, then just at least give me some peace. Number two, though, is it demands a response, right? And so um, suffering can't be understood outside of of relationships and outside of a community and outside of a particular time and place in history where people are suffering in particular ways. Um, and that may be in the hospital. That may be in a hospital room. That may be when your friend, something terrible happens. But what it does is it requires of us to understand the particu particularity of our lives and the ways that in order to be human beings, we have to help others in that time. That's all. <laughs> Actually, I want to read one quote really fast. Okay. This is uh, while you're let, me, let me say one thing that we talked about that I think is really important here, especially, uh, this is important for everybody who m might want to help somebody through suffering, but particularly those in a, in a medical profession. We talked about, uh, and you've written about this, what is life, okay? 
And if we come uh, into our relationships or e- even into uh, being a doctor or a nurse or uh, occupational therapist, whatever it is, and we think that life is only uh, worth living without suffering, we are going to always either be embarrassed to talk to people about their suffering or unable to encourage them that this life, even if it's full of suffering, is still worth fighting for. And so uh, we have this, I think it's, a, it's this optimism that we live with in America that, that only uh, a life without suffering is worth living. And that's just not true because, as we've said, all life includes suffering. And so how do we do that and come along and, and bring hope? It's not, it's, it's not false optimism. It's not pessimism, but it's this hope that this life uh, is real life and it's good, even if it includes a lot of suffering or disability or uh, a loss of uh, a change of narrative. I'm going to read this one quote and then I'm going to say one thing about that. And this is from Howard Watts. He says, for Christians, suffering, even the suffering of a child, cannot be, con- cannot be separated from their calling to be a new people made holy by, by conversion. In a proper context, he quotes someone else, conversion is inseparable from fellowship, a fellowship that is at root fellowship with the Trinity itself. This fellowship is inseparable from commitment to a community, a community expressed in sharing its way of life, its customs and practices. And this is the quote I love. So historically speaking, Christians have not had a solution to the problem of evil. Rather, they have had a community of care that has made it possible for them to absorb the destructive terror of evil that constantly threatens to destroy all human relations. So that's the calling of the church. That's the calling of the Christian body, to step up to the plate. Um, In response to that question, I think it's super important. This is something I've come to realize or think about. Um, I particularly thought about it. My roommate in medical school, her dad got diagnosed with lung cancer and died within four months. And he was 54, I think. And everyone just kept saying, he's just too young to die. It's just such a tragedy. He's 50. He's had so many years left to live. And I thought about that a lot. And And I started thinking, like, not to take away from the tragedy of it, but does that really make sense? that 54 years is not enough years. Okay, so would anyone have thought that a thousand years ago, that 54 years was not enough years? No. What was the life expectancy in, you know, this is the 1500s, it was like 25 or something, you know? So to live 50 years would have been the most incredible gift by a gift of God. But times have changed. Now we conceive of the arc of the human life, we somehow seem to want, think that we have a claim on 90 years, or 80 years, or at least 70 years, and for those to be disease-free, mind you, right? Um, But that is totally nonsensical, right? A thousand years ago, more than one in ten women died in childbirth, and I think one in five children died in childbirth. Death was ever-present, and we didn't have this sense that we're owed, that we have some sort of claim on you know, 85 years of health and happiness. And by if we can reorient ourselves to think about any life, even the life of a newborn baby who dies, you know, uh, because they were born at 25 weeks and they died within six hours, that that life is a gift from God. And instead of asking ourselves, why did, my, why did Vinny die at 20? We, we thank God and we say, 
thank you for Vinny's 20 wonderful years, the contributions he had to the world, and the deep and, you know, indelible memories that he has implanted on my heart. I think that's the orientation we, we need to have to life. And, and there are implications for this, right? Because, as Dave was mentioning, um, what it does is by taking that reorientation, instead of us thinking that only these certain types of life are full and real and actualized lives, instead all life displays God's glory. The life of the blind person, instead of thinking that somehow that life is a lesser life or a lesser form of experience, what it actually does is it reorient, reorients us and says, let us construct a community, like I'm, I think Hauerwas would say, that can support that person, that gets Braille everywhere, right? And we, we, we think of, instead of thinking that only this old person who died in their sleep peacefully is the appropriate form of death, instead we think all life involves suffering. And to ask, why did I get not to live 50 years, is a similar absurdity to say, why did God not create me with wings? You know, why can I not time travel? Because we're bounded in time and space by bodies and flesh. And as Ecclesiastes says, there is truly a time to tear down, a time to build, a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather them together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, on and on and on. Yeah, okay, so here's what I want you to do now. This guy's good. Uh, write down your questions that you have, pass them to the center, and then we'll have somebody, um, for instance, Augusta or Sarah, come and get those, bring those up here, and we'll, we'll get to a couple of those, uh, and we'll, we'll be done at 7 o'clock sharp. Um, and a as you're writing those questions down, um, let me just add a few comments on how do we actually do this? Because if we live in this world of suffering, um, and we're called to come alongside people and help them suffer, and we ourselves are called to lament and not just pretend, how do we do this well? Well, the first thing that we, we have to be sure of is not to, um, as the Stoics would do, uh, put on this veneer that nothing is wrong uh, and abstract everything. So, for instance, we could do this when somebody... Uh, comes and tells us that a loved one has died. We could say, well, you know, everybody dies. And that's supposed to help them through it. But uh, we chuckle, but that's oftentimes how we help people in their suffering. So we don't, we don't want to pretend. The English are usually the worst about this, you know. It's very stoic. Uh, we can't, you're not English. You're highly emotive, uh, which I appreciate. <laughs> And uh, this is what makes you such a good comforter. Uh, but the other thing that we cannot do is become uh, what my professor, Dr. Grotes, would say is Pollyannas, which is that um, because we know that God is going to put all things back, that we jump straight to the optimism of nothing is wrong because God is in control. Now, this is true to a point, but it doesn't take away suffering. This is what's so important about learning to lament, is it doesn't take away suffering. The only thing you can do with suffering is suffer. And so often, if you're like me, you just want to fix the problem. Now, now, maybe you actually have a really good fix. But, but for most of us, lots of times, we're encountering a problem that cannot be fixed. And then we just make the problem worse. So what we need to learn to do is to lament. 
when there's a problem that cannot be fixed, we suffer with them through our lament. Now, we can't take away their suffering by suffering for them, but hopefully we can be with them in the suffering. And so I want to read this quote, and then we'll, we'll take our questions. Now, this is a quote you mentioned earlier. I'll read the whole quote because I think it's so good. This is Nicholas Walterstorff, whose uh, son was killed. He says this, Please don't say it's not so bad, because it is. Death is awful, demonic. If you think your task is com- as comforter is to tell me that, really, all things considered, it's not so bad, you do not sit with me in my grief, but place yourself far off in the distance away from me. Over there, you are no help. What I need to hear from you is that you recognize how painful it is. I need to hear from you that you are, not with, that you are with me in my desperation. To comfort me, you have to come close. Come sit beside me on my morning bench. And, and at least as a pastor and as a follower of Jesus, this is exactly what the gospel tells me that God does. God doesn't sit far away and huck candy canes and lollipops at me to hope to make it go away. He actually got up and walked into my life, and he came close to me, and he bore my suffering on himself, and that's what I'm called to do to others. So we've got to figure out how to do that. We've got to figure out how to not uh, be so stoic and abstract all suffering, and then we've got to be careful not to just become Pollyannas and always be happy when the proper response is lament. Okay, where are those questions? Do we have questions? Any questions? This uh, question, because I think this is a this is a profound question. Uh, why should we lament if we believe our loved one is in heaven? This is such a good question. And actually, if if you've been around Sedaris, we just finished a five week series on heaven. So so maybe you don't know a lot about heaven. Uh, maybe you think you know what the Bible teaches about heaven. If you want to know what the Bible teaches about heaven, you could go online to sedariuschurch.com or you could get the app and actually listen to heaven. But the reason we did this uh, forum on suffering right after heaven is, is exactly this question. Uh, because even though heaven, I believe, is real, and even though Jesus will bring heaven to earth and redeem all things, um, the reality is we are still sufferers. We are, we are not yet. We are still crying. We are still weeping. We are still mourning. We are in that time. And so it's completely proper. And in fact, and, and this is what's so important about the theology of lament, if we don't do that, we're actually living outside of the reality that God has revealed to us. 
he wants us to lament, even though he wants us to have hope and to know and have confidence um, that our loved one is in heaven? That's a great question because it's a both and. The hope of heaven is eyes wide open that this is not yet heaven, but that heaven is coming. These are, these are really hard questions. <laughs> um, man, um, do I want to, I'll take one that's in the middle. <laughs> you mentioned the claim, you mentioned the claim that suffering people have, that suffering people have on Christians, but how can an individual take these claims seriously and not be overwhelmed? What is the p- place of lament in a community, in a community, in a person's lament? Um, so this is a great question. I was thinking about this as I was saying this, the bus example. How do you not, yeah, how do you not just live trying to seek out, do we need, is the right life the one where you just, you know, give up everything you have and go serve? Or every time you see someone suffering, do you need to talk to them and ask them? Um, I would, I would say a starting place is that generally we're too selfish. So generally, I think, Maybe if we just changed it from like an opt-in or from an opt-out, that it, like if you know if we're flipping a coin, we're generally just going to do the don't attend to it, do our own thing, kind of look the other way. Two, just at baseline when it's 50-50, we opt in to actually attending to suffering. That might be a good starting place. But the second answer I think is that knowing when and where and how to address suffering, I think requires wisdom. And, you know, I read a lot in ethics. Uh, in ethics, there's different models of doing ethics, and one is virtue ethics. Virtue ethics traces itself back to Aristotle, and it says that the right answer is the one, th- the right action is the one that requires contemplation and thinking, and it actually, you have to actually weigh the options. There's no external answer that just says, beep, do this, boop, do that. And that's why, you know, we have some form of free will, and we can actually think about our actions. And by doing the right thing over and over, over time, these things become patterns, and then become characteristics, and then we become disciplined, right? So um, I think wisdom is the thing that makes you think, right now, is this an appropriate time? Can I, what other things am I going to have to drop? You know, I'm trying to help do this really important thing, and I see this person, I can't do it right now, and that's okay, I think. I mean, this is all my opinion. But, um, (laughs) I think that, you know, trying to say that there's some objective that you can just look up to and it's going to answer it for you is not the case. This actually requires real scrutiny and thinking and work. Yeah, let me, let me talk on that because that's that was something I was going to say is that we are called to come close to and to take on and to lament with people in their suffering, but not every person. And that's what the importance of community is. Because if, if it's just my job, say, as a pastor, to come alongside everyone who is suffering, it will kill me. Literally, I will die because I cannot do it. I'm not called to do it. So we have this discernment. We have wisdom. Uh, and it's not every, every outpouring of suffering that we are called to come close to and to take on. But we pray. We ask for the Spirit of God, if we are Christians, that he would show to, to us who are those people whom you want me to come close to their suffering. That's so important. Otherwise, you'll feel guilt and shame, um, or you'll be inactive and you won't help any. Yeah. Great. That's a great 
That's a great question. Should we do a three letter one? Or a three letter hard one? Give me a hard one then. Okay. <laughs> All right. This could be the last one. It might take us down. Is suffering, <laughs> whoa. <laughs> Is, <laughs> okay. Should we do this one? <laughs> okay. Um, let's, let's see if we got elsewhere here. If you didn't get your question answered, we'll be up here. We'll answer your questions until everybody goes home. Okay. But these three are really hard. Okay, here we go. This kind of gets to the other one. It's just less specific. What, what is the, Christian, uh, the Christ-centered response to, the ca uh, to cases where Christians are the cause of suffering? Where Christians are the cause of suffering. And, and, and it gets a little bit to this other question, which is there are all, uh, there are so many forms of suffering, right? There, there are human on human suffering. So other human beings um, purposefully inflict pain and suffering on their fellow man. There are also just um, accidents. Things just happen. Uh, there are natural disasters. Um, and I believe there is a personal evil. I believe just as a Christian, it is at work in the world. You've maybe heard uh, his name is uh, Satan or the devil. That is another form of evil that causes pain and suffering in the world. And then we are human beings. Tyler and I, I'm, I'm pointing at us as Christians. If you hang out with us long enough, we will cause you pain and suffering. We tend to be long-winded, so that's <laughs> yeah. painful and suffering. Um, but what was the question? Yeah, the, so the question is, how, what is the response to those sufferings that are caused by Christians who are, are, are meant to be people who come along suffering but actually create more suffering? Um, I think it's the same. I think no matter the origin of suffering, our response to suffering should be the same. Yeah, and I think only God knows who are Christians, right? So we cannot judge. Judge not, lest ye be judged. And by that I mean many of the actions historically done by Christians that were horrible things um, in the past and today, I mean, the, the card mentions the Crusades and persecution of um, LGBT communities. I, I don't think that, one, perhaps those people are not Christians, or two, they are acting out of, um, they are being persuaded by forces or ideas or ideologies that are not from God. Because, um, I mean, you know, the Crusades happened in a very specific time, and there were very specific reasons that people, that they felt that the, you know, that the Muslims had taken over the Holy Land, and it was their charge to go. So acting out of oftentimes good intentions, but oftentimes mixed with bad intentions. There was money there, they were going to, you know, become famous. Um, so the, that's the problem with, you know, looking sort of out and looking at these things. So I think that um, the response... I would say, and what I try and do in my own life, is instead of trying to point fingers or 
let that be a cause for me no longer to believe, because I know that's a lot of reasons. That's a, that's a big reason why people could have told me they, I can't be a Christian because look what Christianity has done or look what Christians are doing. How can this be any sort of true um, repository or, you know, some true church? And um, I think that calls us to, you know, try and rectify these, these wrongs and be, um, you know, biblical and loving Christians. And so once again, it's instead of pointing fingers and spending all our time debating, why don't we actually do something about it? Yeah, let me just talk generally about that because I think this is so important. And if, if you get nothing out of this, I think this is important. We can spend so much of our time talking about why suffering has happened, but it's a butterfly. We, it's a mystery at the end of the day. Everyone in this room is responsible for some suffering being caused on someone else. There's all sorts of suffering that are not related to human beings. But to answer the why this is happening to me or this why this is happening to somebody else actually doesn't, it, we, think, we think that it will fix the suffering if we could just know why but it actually doesn't change anything. What changes or helps us through the suffering is when people come alongside of us, they enter into and they love us through the suffering, encourage us to lament and suffer well and, and go through the process because there is, uh, just understanding why doesn't fix the fact that suffering is happening. All you can do when you suffer is to suffer. And, and getting that, I think, helps us or I hope it helps us to know how to move forward with people and how to move forward with our own grief and our own suffering. Um, and, and that sort of gets at that question. Let me, let me just do this one last one because I think it's important. It's kind of clearing up something that we already said. It says, does changing your perspective on an untimely death, can that be helpful? So, for instance, uh, rather than saying, why only 20 years? Um, saying thank you for 20 years. Um, says, I'm curious how this perspective shift accommodates suicide or whether it does or can, um, and can you still call this type of death appropriate? And the reason I wanted to just talk about this is um, it's related to the last one, the, the last response I just gave, which is to understand that, that a life uh, shortened is still a life to be celebrated, life uh, to be glad of, or life with a dis disability, a life of blindness is still life to be celebrated. Uh, to understand that is not to negate the fact that that is not God's original intent or design. And that is not the end of that story. And so lots of times I think to use Tyler's language of injury to my narrative or injury to my identity or injury to my relationship, that understanding that that is suffering, but from a Christian perspective at least, that that is not the end of the narrative, that all those things that you think might or you desired, wanted to be a part of the narrative, they might not be part of it right now, but that at least in God's economy, they can be a part of it because um, of what has happened on the cross and through the resurrection. And so there's this two-sided coin. Is this making sense, Tyler? 
this two-sided coin of we celebrate the life even if it's imperfect now in the sense of a disability or, or shortened life, but also recognizing that it's not the end of that story. And um, that's really important because it's, it's not an either or, it's a, it's a both and, that we suffer with the sufferers, but we also have hope that one day those, li- th- those years of life, for instance, or that blindness will be removed, will be restored, and taken back to, to everything we hope. Right, because I mean, if, I mean, if we ask what, it was the, what is the point of Christianity and what was the point of Jesus coming to earth, you know, there are at least two immediate things. One is to take away the sins of the world, right? To live the life that we could not live and to die the death that we had to die and then to take that on himself and to um, and then to be resurrected and sit on the right hand of God. The other answer though, to me at least, is that you know, as scripture teaches us um, in this world we will have trouble, but take heart for I have overcome the world, right? That's the fundamental message of Christianity. That is why we have hope. Um, and it's not a naive hope. It's not a, it's not a, you know, a, a, a Marxist opium for the masses. It's a, it's a way of living and a way of being in the world and relating to others and absorbing the suffering that we see and that we have. Um, and, um, and that allows us to live and have hope for the future. Uh, tonight, uh, I hope this is this is my prayer that that we leave this place, that we realize that we are called to each other, to our fellow man, that we're called to help each other through suffering, that we're called to recognize in people suffering that is happening. That if you're suffering, you don't feel like you have to suffer alone. That maybe somebody you even met tonight might come alongside you and help in some way. You have to go through that suffering on your own. You can't give it away, but somebody can come right alongside of you and help. Um, and then that, that, that we would figure out how to see life as fully as possible now, but realize that there's more life to come. Um, and if you want to explore more of, of that life to come and, and what it might look like to live a life of hope and a life with God and, and follow Jesus, we'd love to have you back here at Sedaris. We meet here at this time every night. Um, <laughs> I'm thinking about doing every night, man. Are you available? Yeah, every Sunday night, and um, uh, we'd love we'd love for you to join our community, and hopefully you can find this place to be a community uh, that suffers well together and laments uh, that it's already but not yet. So, okay, go in peace. Have a great uh, Sunday night, and we'll be back here every night this week. No, just next Sunday. All right, thank you. <laughs>